Welcome, this is Jessica Ortner and our time together is dedicated to feeling good within all of life's complexities. We'll be going on a wandering path, exploring topics like spirituality, productivity, and personal fulfillment. Because happiness is not a destination, it's an adventure. So welcome to Adventures in Happiness. We have such a good story. <laughs> I can't. Guys, it is so early. And last night I had food poisoning. We ordered Indian food. And two hours after eating it, I was on the floor next to my toilet. And I'm trying to record this intro. And I keep stumbling over my words because I am tired. But I am feeling better. And I think I'm going to take a little nap after this. But done is better than perfect, right? We just got to go for it. So let me tell you about this new show. When it comes to social interactions, we can't avoid them. Whether it's work or meeting new friends or even having to interact with our own family, being able to understand people better and understand what they're thinking, what they're feeling, and how we can better influence them is like having a superpower. And Vanessa Van Edwards is our superhero in today's episode. She such a fascinating person. She's the lead investigator at Science of People, a human behavior research lab. Her latest book, which we talked about, talk about is called Captivate, and it was chosen as one of Apple's most anticipated books in 2017. She is fascinated by body language, leadership, and charisma, and writes about these topics for CNN, Fast Company, and Forbes. She also has a monthly column for Entrepreneur Magazine and the Huffington Post. This is the deal. When it comes to what she's teaching, it can benefit all of us, because unless we're living under a rock, we have to interact with other people. And especially if we want to influence someone else or we have an idea that we want to share, being able to understand how to better communicate and understand body language, again, it is a superpower. So you're really going to enjoy it. Uh, This show is sponsored by The Tapping Solution, my love, my passion. If you are new to tapping, check out thetappingsolution.com and you can download a free tapping in the morning and evening for stress relief CD right there on the homepage and stay connected with us. We are always coming out with a lot of free tapping meditations and awesome stuff. We have another sponsor. Oh my goodness, guys, I love this so much. This has changed my life and I do not say that lightly. If you heard some of the past episodes, especially the one with Julie Danilik, you know that I discovered that for a year I was drinking water that had really high uranium in it. And so when I did a heavy metals test, my uranium levels were through the roof. And getting heavy metals out of your system is tricky. The best way to detox, the best way to detox, excuse me, is to sweat. And I love working out, but there is nothing as powerful like an infrared sauna. So Lucas and I got an infrared sauna for the house. It has completely changed our energy level. We can already, just from beginning to use it in the detoxing process, we are feeling so much better 
The infrared sauna helps with pain relief, with arthritis, getting those heavy metals out. I mean, the, the list of how it can help you is is endless. I mean, it's it's huge. So if you want to learn more about the Clear Light Infrared Sauna, go to thetappingsolution.com forward slash notes because I've teamed up with them to get you a discount. I do not share other products casually or lightly. I only share things that I am very passionate about. So if this is something that interests you, check it out because it has been truly life-changing and I'm so grateful to them. So without any further ado, enjoy my conversation with Vanessa. If you loved it and you're on iTunes, leave a five-star review. It's always helpful. And share it with people that you love. It is an act of love. So let's spread the love, people. Enjoy. Welcome, Vanessa. Thanks for being with us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Well, I've spent the last two nights reading your book. Oh, And I'm so excited to talk about it. And I want to start off uh, by asking you, I know that you're a human behavior investigator. Was there a moment in the beginning of your career when you realized that what you were teaching could really impact people? Was there a moment when you thought, wow, this, this information can really change someone's life? Yeah, you know, I, I did have that moment when you, as you asked the question, it instantly popped into my head. You know, I'd always, I always thought the work was helpful. I always thought it was really interesting, but I don't think I realized how life-changing it could be until, and there was this interesting moment I had just teaching a, te- teaching. <laughs> that's good. That's, that's a good way to start the interview. I was teaching a um, class on Creative Live, like a online class, and it was a class on people skills. And I, I think sort of, formulaically, you know, I have a lot of like formulas and blueprints and I like lists and things like that. And, um, so I taught the class and three or four days after the class aired, I got an email, a very long email from a gentleman. And this was like one of those emails where it just like made every hard night, every long day worth it. He is uh, an adult with Asperger's and, um, he's in a community of high functioning Asperger's as well. And he had heard about the class through them. And he said that, his entire life, he had always tried to understand people, but it just, it eluded him. And this was the first time where he ever felt like he could actually find a girlfriend or make friends. And oh. that he was already reaching out and talking to people and his his colleagues, his coworkers. He started to go, he went to his first barbecue that he'd ever been to that weekend. And he actually said that he had a good time. It was the first time he had ever had that in his entire life. Um, and so that was when I realized, wow, like this is not just helpful. This is not just interesting. It, it's actually, it could be life changing if you choose to use it that way. Yeah, absolutely. And for someone who, uh, th- some of this stuff ca- comes naturally to me. And yeah. I, I remember uh, when I was in, I think it was probably middle school. One day my dad picked me up um, from school and I just started to complain about how I felt it was so unfair that my two older brothers got great great grades and it just seemed effortless for them. And for me, if I got good grades, it was because I worked 10 times harder than they did. And I, I, you know, I was just kind of complaining to him about it. And he said, yes, but your brothers can't walk up to a stranger and make friends. And they don't have the courage that you do. And I remember looking at him and think and asking like, well, does that actually matter? Like, you're not graded on that. 
And he told me, yes, that's something that's really valuable. And I'm so happy that my parents, even though I struggled in some areas in school, they acknowledged that this area of life is important. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. yeah, it's funny because it, they are really different parts of our brain. So when you look at, you know, I love neuroscience and I was, I felt great relief, just how you had that experience, like with your brothers of like, you have literally different kinds of intelligence. When I first stumbled across the first set of studies that said like, there are literally different parts of your brain for reading faces. There's a specific part of your brain for memorizing facts. There's a specific part of your brain for um, solving difficult communication. If you are not as developed in those parts of your brain, the good news is we can always grow them later, right? Like yes. the, the brain is, is, mus- is a muscle. But it was like, okay, I was not born deficient. I just have different areas of strength. And it is the same thing as um, someone being a good singer or a good painter versus a good computer person or graphic designer. And when you look at it that way, there's a lot less judgment. Like we are very, very mean to ourselves on, on that judgment. And the very first thing I try to teach people is like, there is no judgment here. Don't critique yourself for whatever your perceived social faults are because it's, mere, it's actually in your brain. Yes, I love that. And I love this idea that this is something you can study. And it's great that we're talking about this because it's not something that many people talk about, that this is something you can improve. You know, people think you're either a people person or you're not. Uh, But there are specific skills that you can learn. Uh, And so when it comes to those skills, I think a big one is is meeting people, networking. I think in most people in their career have to do some level of networking. So when it comes to having to introduce yourself, make that great first impression, what are some things that we should be aware of and what are some great tips? Yeah, so the first thing is I always like to work with people's strengths. And, you know, we're very, we're, we're, we love this frame of mind when it comes to the workplace, like, right, StrengthsFinder 2.0, and we're all about, you know, taking our job career strengths test. We very rarely think about social strengths, um, but we actually do have different social strengths, and you can break these down. And, and so I talk about how, like, for example, is it is it a strength, a social strength that you have telling stories, or is it connecting to people, or is it listening, or is it observing, is it decoding? Is it being a mediator? Those are all social strengths. So the very first thing is to think about what are your natural social strengths? Where do you already excel? And this specifically can be tied to location. So when I first started my business, the worst advice I got was say yes to everything, right? Like as an entrepreneur, everyone's like, yes, you never know where the opportunity is going to come from. Say yes to everything. And the problem is, is I was saying yes to things that I was not socially good at. So I learned after I kind of realized that I was acting on my weaknesses, not my strengths, that I do really well in learning environments like one-on-one podcasts, even like some conferences, breakout sessions. I do not do as well in really big kind of cold call networking events where you have to approach strangers. (laughs) I'm not very good in like loud bars or like those kind of uh, late night entrepreneurial parties. Those make me a little bit nervous. (laughs) And so what I want you to think about for people who are listening is where are you your best self? So what are the specific locations where you really thrive? Is it you know, friends of friends? Is it like kind of barbecues or backyard parties? Is it like concerts and festivals and fairs where you feel like you're your true self? Is it conferences? Is it bars and nightclubs? Um, If you can develop your networking around those specific locations, 
it's like you're already setting yourself up for success and you're already working with your social strengths. Right. And I think a big point to that is don't try to fit into a place that isn't your social strength. Right? Yes. Because I think we force ourselves to just like want to like it, but you have to honor the fact that if you don't like something, you can't fake it. I I don't like the phrase fake it till you make it. It's just not, it's not, I I think that it's, it's so much more energy, right? Like I, Mm -hmm. it's, if it's already takes a lot of interaction to close a deal or get a business card or whatever it is, or ask someone on a date, why would you put yourself in a location that already from the very start takes more energy, right? That's like, it, it just makes it so much harder for you. So thinking about the locations is the first part. And the second part is also, um, being okay with, knowing your strengths. So for example, um, I know that I don't do as well doing like, like flat out cold contacting. Like that's just not my way of doing things, but I do really well with like one, like when someone introduces me to someone, even a slightly warm contact, I'm really, I have like, I can do that. I can level that up. So I have optimized asking new contacts or friends, Hey, do you know anyone who might like this book? Or do you know anyone who is looking for a corporate speaker? I've optimized asking for that warm introduction as opposed to trying to gather all this energy to pick up the phone and cold call people. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. And another thing I really learned from reading your book is how much we communicate with our body. Can you tell us about that? Because a lot of times people think, you know, I'm just not good with words. I don't know what to say. And from reading this book, I realized that's not even the most important part. Yeah. I, I, I also agree with you. I, I kind of find this as, as a relief. So when I, you know, we focus so much on our verbal, we always, when we go into an interview or a date or a pitch, we think about what we want to say, right? We, we like script out the perfect answer. We practice with ourselves in the mirror, but actually research fa- has found that at a minimum, 60% of our communication is nonverbal. That's our voice tone, our body language, and our facial expressions. But the problem is, is we might maybe put 5% of our effort into the how we say something. Much more goes into the what we say. Um, so this is actually like finding a secret superpower, right? It's like you've had your body all along, <laughs> and all you have to do is learn how to maximize it. And it's actually quite easy. Um, the first thing that you want to know is that your emotions are contagious. So study after study has found that if you put people into a room with a highly emotional person, and this could be negative or positive, if that person is non-verbally expressive, they often infect other people in the room with that emotion or feeling. So if you are feeling anxious or nervous, that is most likely to infect the people that you're with. So before you even show up somewhere, you want to think about how to get your internal place into a space where you become the good infector, not the bad infector. Right. So is that if we decide, okay, I'm about to walk through the store, I can feel um, like I'm shrinking a bit. And you even talk about it, how there is a great story of how when you see people finishing a race, the winner tends to expand their body and the losers just, you know, shrink. And so we can see how we use our body to express those emotions. So if we feel like, okay, I'm, I'm shrinking a bit, could we just, if we change our body, is that going to impact the way that we're feeling or is it, are there another place that we should start? So there's 
two places you can leverage. And this is the good thing. There's no wrong answer here. So you could start with your body and that will increase a positive feedback loop. So for example, if you stand like a winner, and as you just mentioned, um, the researchers from University of British Columbia found that when we stand broadly, it's very similar to the universal pride stance. So for example, if I'm driving, I'll pump up music so that I like kind of pump my arms up. I try to take up as much space as possible. I always have chairs with armrests because that also helps me roll my shoulders back and have space between my torso and my arms. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, so if you stand in a pride pose, you are more likely to feel pride. So that's one way that you can do it. The other way is, is with a mentality. And by by the way, it's always um, nice to do both if you can. Um, so the first one is standing broadly or as broadly as you can. The second one has to do with a very interesting experiment. So in this experiment, what they did is they had um, three different groups. One was a control group, so they were told nothing. The second group, they had them sing the song Don't Stop Believing, you know that yes. great song? <laughs> Yes. They had them sing that song into an accuracy software, a karaoke accuracy software. And right before they sang, they had them say, I'm nervous. The last group, they had them sing, don't stop believing, but they had them say, I'm excited. Now think about this for a second. You're, you're, you walk into a research lab and the researcher says, hi, so today for our research experiment, you're going to be doing a karaoke song <laughs> and you're going to be rated on your accuracy. And by the way, accuracy is words, uh, pitch, volume and notes that you hit. So it, it's all different kinds of accuracy. Immediately you're like, oh my gosh, like I'm so nervous, I'm so anxious. And you're, the experimenter tells you what to say, either nothing in the control group or I'm nervous or I'm excited. Now, when I first read the study, I was like, oh, there'll be no change. Or if the change, it'll be like negligible, you know, just saying I'm excited, how could that be much of a difference? So here were the results. The, the nervous group, the group that said I'm nervous, got 53% accuracy. The control group that said nothing got 69% accuracy. And the excited group got 80% accuracy. Right. So if you think uh. about this for a second, before you walk into a date or a meeting or a conference and you're like, oh, I'm so nervous, I'm so nervous, you are literally telling your body and your mind, I'm nervous and therefore you perform less accurately. Whereas if you feel your pounding heart and your sweaty palms and your butterfly stomach and you say, oh, that's excitement, that's not nerves, just telling your mind and your body that's excitement helps you actually act like excited and pride, proudful because excitement is an, a facet of pride. Right. Just that one phrase. And by the way, she didn't even, the researcher didn't even tell them feel excited. All she said was say it out loud. So imagine what this does if you actually try to harness the feeling of excitement. I love that because I think sometimes we psych ourselves out or we feel like I have to feel completely calm and at peace and completely secure before taking action. But a lot of times, I, anytime we're expanding and growing, it is a little uncomfortable because we're expanding and that's really healthy. So label it excitement. Yeah. And also you're right. You, you hit on something I think that's really important here, which is calm is good right? Like peaceful, mindful, amazing. I don't know about you, but I don't tend to be that calm all that often. I'm working on it. I'm trying to meditate more, <laughs> but I, what works for me a little bit better is that feeling of, of positive excitement. And so reframing my nervousness as excitement helped me not feel like a failing meditator, right? Like not yes. like a failed 
calm person. And, and that's where like that judgment, that self-judgment comes in of like, oh, why are you so nervous? That's a really hard place to be when you're, when you're like, just get calm, come on, get calm. <laughs> that's right. like the worst place to be For, versus no, like this is excitement. This is like good butterflies. This sweat is going to get me there. And, and, and I always tell, like when I do a lot of work with public speakers, I say to them, you know, you want adrenaline, like adrenaline makes you perform. Like you love it, like harness it, use it, make sure that that's going to help you remember things. Like I always now think that if I'm not excited before an event, I don't think the event's going to go as well. Yes. Beyonce, actually, I heard her say once that if she's not nervous, then she she starts to get nervous about not being nervous because like like she feels like she performs the best when she has those butterflies before going on stage. We got to learn from Beyonce. We got to learn from Beyonce. Yes. There's a great story. And you might have heard this one. Tony Robbins shares it often where he was working with someone with fear of public speaking And they were explaining, yes, I get clammy hands and my heart begins to be and I begin to sweat a bit. And then he was speaking to um, Bruce Springsteen, as Tony Robbins does, and uh, asked Bruce, like, what's it like before going on stage? And he goes, oh, I get so excited that my hands get clammy and my heart begins to be and I start to sweat. And that's when I know I'm ready. And it was incredible Mm. to see the same physical response, just different meaning. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is perfect. I hadn't heard that story before, but it reminds me times I show this video. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a great video on YouTube. It's called Strangers Kissing. And it's that video. Have you seen this where they have two strangers come into a room and then kiss each other? Have you seen that video? Yes, I have. I have seen that video. Okay, so sometimes I show that video to my students and I say, like, imagine this for a second. Like, imagine you're about to kiss someone, a stranger, someone you know, and what do you feel? Butterflies in your stomach, sweaty palms, heart pounding. And usually, if you really like someone, you feel that way. If you don't like someone, you feel nothing. It's the exact same thing of a, with a really good event or a really good date or a really good interview. You want those excited feelings because it means something good is coming to you. Yes, I love that. Well, staying on the topic of speaking, of public speaking, which we've kind of transitioned to that, a lot of us have to present in some way in our lives, you know, whether it's just in a board meeting or it's on stage. And I got a lot of great, I learned a lot from you when it comes to presenting, especially hand motions. Can you tell us mm-hmm. about that? Yeah. So I obviously I present all day, every day. Um, and, um, I'm fascinated by it. And I was, when we do a lot of experiments in our lab. So we run a human behavior research lab in Portland. And the way that I always think about experiments is I'm always looking for puzzles. And I accidentally stumbled upon a puzzle. I love Ted talks. I watch Ted talks almost every day at lunch. And, um, I was on the Ted.com website searching for leadership talks and up popped two talks. One you probably have seen, it's by Simon Sinek. It had like 45 million views, something crazy like that. Right. And the other talk that came up was uh, by Field Wicker Murin, someone I hadn't heard of. And I looked at these two talks and I was baffled because one of the talks has you know millions and millions of views. The other one has under 20,000. They both came out the same month of the same year, September of 2009. They both had were 18 minutes long and they both had very similar titles. Yet one went viral and one didn't. And it made me wonder, you know, all these amazing videos on TED, like TED doesn't have any schmo speakers, right? right. Like their speakers are all <laughs> amazing, right? The bar is, these are all experts. And by the way, 
Simon Sinek and Fields Wickermuren were both relatively unknown experts at the time of their talk. But somehow Simon Sinek's talk made him famous. So I'm like, why is it that some talks, which are not by celebrities, right? Like if you look at the top 10 TED Talks, they are not by celebrities. They're by TED celebrities because TED's made them celebrities. So we decided to analyze thousands of hours of TED Talks in our lab, and we coded all the top TED Talks versus the bottom TED Talks looking for patterns. And we found there were very distinct patterns between the most viral and the least viral TED Talks based on view count. The biggest one was hand gestures. So the most popular TED Talkers in 18 minutes use an average of 465 hand gestures, whereas the least popular TED Talkers use an average of 272 hand gestures. This, I mean, that number is astounding, right? Yes. Like that, that difference is, is huge. And it made me find all this more academic research on how our hands are one of our most important assets as public speakers. So if you are presenting in any way, shape, or form in a small business meeting, if you're presenting dinner ideas to your family, if you're you know speaking in front of a TED audience, the best thing you can do is both verbally and non-verbally script your talk. So thinking about how can I explain my concept along with my words? So for example, the best TED Talkers will say, I have a big idea. And they hold out their hands like they're holding a beach ball. It wouldn't make sense if I said I have a big idea and I held up my fingers like I was holding a penny, right? Like you would look at that and be like, (laughs) well, it's not very big. It looks so small. You know, (laughs) it doesn't look very big to me. Um, That is because we give a lot of weight. We give a lot of nonverbal weight to our hands. So to think about how can you explain your concepts with your words and using the stage. So with my big talks, I have hand gesture motions, I have vocal power changes, I actually script out my vocal power changes, and I script out my movement on the stage. Those nonverbal signals are incredibly important. That makes the difference between a good speaker, like a good TED Talk, and like a great TED Talk. Right. And can you tell us about why when people see someone else's hands, there's a sense of safety? If that's the right word. Yeah, safety is the perfect word. Um, And this is because... When you think about um, back in the caveman days, if you were approached by a stranger caveman, the first thing you wanted to make sure of is this person friend or foe. Like, are they safe? So you immediately, before you look at their face, you look at their hands to see if they're carrying a rock or a spear. That's why, you know, please tell you get your hands up. That's why, you know, in, in when you're trying to approach a, a strange animal or a strange person, you hold your hands up and say, you know, I don't mean any harm, no harm. I'm here as a friend. We hold our hands up to say, I'm not hiding anything. I'm not concealing a weapon. So when we can't see someone's hands, they're in your pocket, they're behind a podium, they're under your purse, like they're behind your purse strap, they're behind your back. The other person's brain gets very slightly activated in the fear region, in the amygdala, because they're like, I don't know, is this person concealing something? Are they hiding something from me? And so the best thing you can do upon first glance is making sure that you are leading hands first. So going in for the handshake, if you're walking out on stage, having a nice wave. Um, If you're a doctor, for example, I work with a lot of doctors who will hide their hands in their lab coat pockets or behind their clipboard. I always say, if you're going to walk into the room, come out hand first, they know that you're going in for the handshake. One, you get a great handshake and handshakes are very good for lots of reasons. And second, you show them, I am not concealing anything. I love that. And you have such a good sweaty hand tip because I think some people worry about that. <laughs> Could you share it? Yes. 
Yes. Okay. This is my, this is like one of my favorite secret tips. So, cause a lot of people, what was happening was, is I would have people who would like come up to me after speaking events and they would like whisper, they would like lean and they'd be like, I know I have to do handshakes, but I have really sweaty hands. And so I always avoid them. And so I was like, I have to think of a tip for these amazing people because they're avoiding the handshake. So what you do, if you have sweaty hands is always make sure that you immediately get a drink or bring a water bottle with you and then wrap a napkin around the drink or water bottle because that way you can hold it in your handshaking hand. It's on the napkin, which is drying your hand. So when you have to handshake, you immediately pull it off the hand, the napkin, shake their hand, and then it goes right back on the napkin. It's a really subtle way of keeping your hand nice and dry and also not having a, uh, also just having a drink also always makes you feel sort of like, okay, I have something to ground me. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's very true. I loved that tip. So we've talked about networking, public speaking. Another area that I'm so fascinated with or just learning more is social media because here we're expressing ourselves but in a different way because people are only getting glimpses. So what are your thoughts when it comes to some tips on how to, um, you know, because a lot of us have to do social media for work. So how do we really kind of put our best foot forward in that case and not seem obnoxious? Because I feel like sometimes like, like I feel like I, when I see someone else's social media, sometimes I really love people and sometimes I love the person when I meet them, but I cannot stand their social media. Does that make sense? Have you ever had uh -huh. one of those people? Like you're like, I love you as a person. You're so fun. You're so cool. For some reason, when I look at your social media, I find you so irritating. <laughs> Oh my God. I totally know what you're talking about. It's funny because this is a huge issue, right? Like having alignment or congruency between our online reputation and our offline reputation or our, our online persona and self versus our offline persona and self is a huge issue. And what's interesting was I did a workshop at South by Southwest two years ago on um, digital branding. So like on, you know, what are, what's happening psychologically on social media and it, sold out like packed room. And I was like, who's going to do this? And everyone was in there. And one of the most important or favorite sections from that was, is really interesting is basically starting with your profile picture. So if you think about, you know, your social media presence, it's sort of, I call them digital assets, right? So you have your profile picture, you have your um, kind of one liner, you have your entire profile. So that could be as long as a LinkedIn profile or a dating profile picture. Then you have like skills and assets, connections, all these, all these different things. But the very first one, the anchor point, your first impression online is your social media profile picture. And it basically sets the stage for everything that you do online, every interaction. Um, so we did a study. We actually ha haven't published the results yet of the, the preliminary results we put, we put in the book. Um, it was called a hot or not study. And what we did is we looked at profile pictures on hotornot.com. <laughs> that, that website's actually still around. Like, that was a big, big thing and when I was in high school. Basically what it is is people put pictures of themselves online and people rate them as hot or not. And that we wanted sounds to see like a, was, that sounds horrible, but a great way horrible. to research something. Like. Yes, it, I totally agree. It's horrible as a consumer, but I will tell you as a as a lab, it's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. Because it basically assigns a number to people, right? Like a, a very like I don't want to say objective, but a, a sampling number of what is this person's rating. And from a behavior perspective, that's very interesting. Yeah. So we, um, we looked at all these pictures. We took a random sampling of both men and women and we looked at their ratings and I wanted to see if there was 
patterns between the hottest or the nottest, right? Like, was there anything beyond just pure attractiveness, like in the, the nonverbal signals of the picture? So um, one of the biggest things we found is that the biggest breaker, like the biggest deal breaker of hotness, it's actually like it's your, your hotness doesn't even matter if you do this one deal breaker, which is the smirk. So a smirk or a one-sided mouth raise is actually the universal micro expression for contempt. And contempt is incredibly negative. I mean, it's scorn and disdain. It's like a little bit of um, better than you kind of a expression, but it's seen, people think of it as like nonchalant, little sarcastic, um, kind of not taking themselves too seriously, but actually it's a very negative expression. So anytime that someone had that contempt micro expression on their face, they immediately lost points, um, no matter what they were wearing, doing whatever they looked like. So the very first thing I would say is in your online brand, make sure you're not showing the smirk because that's, that's the deadliest one. Yes. Oh, that's so good to know. I'm going to start looking at all my photos now. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Talk about micro expressions because you just mentioned it with a smirk. Are there any other? I mean, I know there's many micro expressions, but are there a few that are your favorite to notice? Yes. Oh my gosh, I love. So I, you know how you asked at the beginning of the interview if there was like a moment where I knew um, the work could be life changing. I will say that I also had a similar moment when I learned micro expressions for the first time because this was the this was the work that hooked me. When I discovered this research, it's done by Dr. Dr. Paul Ekman. I don't know if anyone has seen the show Lie to Me, but it's an amazing show on Netflix and it's based on a real life man named Dr. Paul Ekman. And he's who I got my training from. He discovered that facial expressions are not learned. And this was a really, this was a really kind of assumed concept in science for, for decades where we thought babies were born looked at their mother or father's face and mirrored their expression. And that's how we made facial expressions. But actually, um, we, he found that congenitally blind babies, babies who've been blind since birth, make the same facial expressions at the same time as seeing babies. This wow. has huge implications. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, huge implications because it means that somehow how we express emotion is coded in our genetics. It actually comes out from our body. It's not visualized, which means across cultures, across genders, across races, we have these same expressions of emotions. It's just part of being human. So he has discovered there are seven universal microexpressions, and contempt is one of them. It's the simplest one. It's just that one-sided mouth raise. He's discovered so all of them, it's contempt, sadness, disgust, anger, happiness, sadness, and fear. I think I got all of them. Yeah. Um, I, I, maybe I missed surprise. I might have said one, one twice. Um, and, um, by the way, you can look at all these on our website. We have them all up for free. Um, so you can check them all out on there. But what was interesting was, is how you respond to these facial expressions once you see them. Like, what do you do when you see contempt? Like, okay, so you take it off your profiles, but like all of a sudden you're with someone. What do you do if you see them smirking at you? And, and that spotting is actually the most important thing because basically what you're saying is I choose to recognize the true emotions that are happening even if the words don't match. Yes. Like The Bachelor, right? Like The Bachelor. <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness. Do I love The Bachelor? And, of course, I watch it for work. 
Yeah, right, of course. <laughs> it's it's my it's my I'm like I tell my husband I'm like, you know, you could watch Monday Night Football, but I have to watch The Bachelor for work. It's really important <laughs> research for me. Um it is amazing by the way, when you learn expressions, it's like watching the world in HD. Like things you never noticed before all of a sudden pop up at you and I do a Bachelorette Fantasy League every season because um, I read the micro expressions and I always win. No one will ever play with me <laughs> because, <laughs> because all you have to do is read the micro expressions and you always know who they're going to pick. And I give an example in the book of one of my favorite Bachelorette scenes. If anyone watched this show, um, it's it was between Bachelorette Emily Maynard and Ari, the race car driver. And it was the moment where I knew she wouldn't pick him. I think this was like episode two. And it was because he said to her, I'm a race car driver. And her husband, her widow was a race car driver and died on the way to a race. And when he says that to her, she flashes contempt at him. And he never addressed it. He goes, oh, great. You're okay with it? She's like, yeah, I'm totally okay with it. And I'm like, nope, that was a deal breaker. And sure enough, he made it to the final two and not to the end. And I think that the big reason for that was because of that one single moment in episode two. Yeah, I love that. You know, it is really fun because you learn this and then you can watch all your favorite shows and just interact in the world differently. It's like you're you learn you're learning how to read a different language. Oh, it's it, it that's exactly the way that I think about it. It's and I call that chapter by the way speed reading because, you know, when you learn how to read, actually read the the alphabet, it was like, "Oh my gosh, like you can read that sign and that label and this thing and it like opens up your world. It is the same thing with nonverbal. You are literally learning a different language and you're seeing it all of a sudden in things that you just didn't comprehend before. Yes. So Vanessa, I have two questions I love to ask all my guests. But before I go into those questions, uh, can you tell people about your book and where they can find it? Sure. Yeah. So it's called Captivate, um, subtitle, The Science of Succeeding with People. And it is basically the book that I always wanted growing up. I was, it's the people skills to your technical skills. Um, it's like how charisma works, the, this framework for conversation, how to work a room. What does it actually mean to have a killer first impression? Um, and it's really the book that it comes from a, uh, all of my research over the many years of studying people. And um, it's available wherever books are sold. I just finished the audio book, which was really fun as well. Um, and so, yeah, that's I. If, if, it, if any of the things that we've been talking about resonate with you, if you have particularly a person in your life who you want to level up with, like someone you want to get deeper with or closer with or heal, if you've had a frictions with someone, um, that's really the goal of the book is to help you level up your relationships. Yes. It's, I love the book. Congratulations. It really is. It's Thank an you. easy read and it's so yes. experimental. Like, uh, wait, exper experimental. No, experimental. That's the word. It's actually <laughs> both. I'll take both. It's yes. Experimental and experiential. <laughs> Ex I'll take it both. All right. I'll give it to you. It really is fantastic. Um, okay. So here are my two questions. Um, could you share with us something that happened in your life? Life that in the moment it seemed horrible, but in the end ended up becoming a really big blessing. Oh yeah. So um, yeah, about I would say four years ago. Um, I don't know if anyone listening reads the Buffer blog, but there's a, a, a social media tool called Buffer, and they have this amazing blog, great resource. 
And I loved this blog. And at the time, I was doing a lot of um, writing. So I was writing for the science of people in our lab, but I was also doing a ton of writing for any outlet that would hire me. And Buffer was hiring a new writer for their blog. And like, I was like, oh my God, I want this writer job so bad. It was full time. And I had never taken a full time job. And I was like, you know, I'll, I'll push science of people stuff to the tonight's and weekends. I'll be able to balance both. I really just want to write for this blog. And applied. They rejected me. And I was like devastated. I was like, what? Like, oh my God. Like, I, I was so sad. I was like, is my writing not good enough? Like, you know, basically what's wrong with me, right? And two things happened from that. One is I actually started reaching out to make my writing better, mm-hmm. um, which was incredibly important because it's what turned my personal blog around and got me the book deal, which was great. So I started, I took a writing class. I hired a writing coach. I made that better thinking maybe I would reapply for Buffer. But what happened was is as my writing got better, my website really started taking off. I was able to get a lot more articles for some people and then get a book deal. So that moment was like devastating and it was the best thing that ever happened. I love that. I love that. Well, my last question, if you could be any animal, what would you be and why? Animal. I would probably, I would probably be a dog. I love dogs and um, I often think about the dog mentality versus the cat mentality. I don't know if you've ever heard of this before. Yeah. I, I'm, um, I'm a, you know, recovering control freak. So, um, I've always tried to adopt more of the dog mentality of, you know, my excitement, right? I'm always trying to harness my excitement and dogs are always so excited. Like they're always so excited to see you. They're lovable creatures. They're high touch animals. And I think it would be just amazing to be, um, either my dog or my family's dog or my friend Steven's dog because he treats his dog better than anyone else in his life. So I would probably want to be one of their dogs. <laughs> I, I love that. I love that. Well, Vanessa, <laughs> this has been a ton of fun. Congratulations on this great book and thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. 